The Ghosts of Many Christmases. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. The Ghosts of Many Christmases. From the Collection of Children of the Bush. By Henry Lawson. Did you ever trace back your Christmas days, right back to the days when you were innocent and Santa Claus was real? At times you thought you were very wicked, but you never realized how innocent you were until you've grown up and knocked about the world. Let me think. Christmas in an English village, with bare hedges and trees, and leaden skies that lie heavy on our souls as we walk, with overcoat and umbrella, sons of English exiles, and exiles in England, and think of bright skies and suns overhead, and sweeps of country disappearing into the haze, and blue mountain ranges melting into the azure of distant lower skies, and curves of white and yellow sand beaches, and runs of shelving yellow sandstone sea walls, and the glorious Pacific, Sydney Harbour at sunrise, and the girls we took to Manly Beach. Christmas in a London flat, gloom and slush and soot. It is not the cold that affects us Australians so much, but the horrible gloom. We get heartsick for the sun. Christmas at sea, three Christmases, in fact, one going saloon from Sydney to West Australia, early in the golden nineties, with funds, and one, the Christmas after next, coming back steerage with nothing but the clothes we'd slept in, all of which was bad judgment on our part. The order and manner of our going and coming should have been reversed. Christmas in a Hessian tent, in the western, and so many old mates from the east that it was just old times over again. We had five pounds of corned beef and a kerosene tin to boil it in, and while we were talking of old things, the skeleton of a kangaroo dog grabbed the beef out of the boiling water and disappeared into the scrub, which made it seem more like old times than ever. Christmas going to New Zealand, with experience by the SS Tasmania. We had plumbed up, but it was too soggy for us to eat. We dropped it overboard, lest it should swamp the boat, and it sunk to the ooze. The Tasmania was saved on that occasion, but she found it next year outside Gisborne. Perhaps the cook had made more duff. There was a letter from a sweetheart of mine amongst her mails when she went down, but that's got nothing to do with it, though it made some difference in my life. Christmas on a new telegraph line with a party of lining gangmen in New Zealand. There was no duff nor roast because there was no firewood within twenty miles. The cook used to pile armfuls of flax sticks under the billies, and set light to them when the last man arrived in camp. Christmas in Sydney, 
with a dozen invitations out to dinner. The one we accepted was to a sensible Australian Christmas dinner, a typical one, as it should be, and will be before the Commonwealth is many years old. Everything cold except the vegetables, the hose playing on the veranda and vines outside, the men dressed in sensible pyjama-like suits, and the women and girls fresh and cool and jolly, instead of being hot and cross and looking like boiled carrots, and feeling like boiled rags, and having headaches after dinner, as would have been the case had they broiled over the fire in a hot kitchen or the blazing forenoon to cook a scalding, indigestible dinner, as many Australian women do, and for no other reason than that it was the fashion in England. One of those girls was very pretty, and, ah, well. Christmas dinner in a greasy Sydney sixpenny restaurant that opened a few days before with brass band going at full blast at the door by way of advertisement. Roast beef, one. Cabbage and potatoes, one. Plum pudding, two. That was the first time I dined to music. The Christmas dinner was a good one, but my appetite was spoiled by the expression of the restaurant keeper, a big man with a heavy jowl, who sat by the door with a cold eye on the sixpences, and didn't seem to have much confidence in human nature. Christmas, no, that was New Year, on the Warrego River, out back, and a ledge river, with a stickly stream that looked like bad milk. We spent most of that night hunting round in the dark and feeling on the ground for camel and horse droppings with which to build fires and make smoke round our camp to keep off the mosquitoes. The mosquitoes started at sunset and left off at daybreak when the flies got to work again. Christmas dinner under a brush shearing shed, mutton and plum pudding, and fifty miles from beer. An old bush friend of mine, one Jimmy Nowlett, who ranked as a bullock driver, told me of a Christmas time he had. He was cut off by the floods with his team, and had nothing to eat for four days but potatoes and honey. He said potatoes dipped in honey weren't so bad, but he had to sleep on bullock yokes laid on the ground to keep him out of the water, and he got a toothache that paralysed him all down one side. And speaking of plum pudding, I consider it one of the most barbarous institutions of the British. It is a childish, silly, savage superstition, and must have been a savage inspiration, looking at it all round, but then it isn't so long since the British were savages. I got a letter last year from a mate of mine in Western Australia, prospecting the awful desert out beyond White Feather, telling me all about a perish he did on plum pudding. He and his mates were camped at the Boulder Soak with some three or four hundred miles, mostly sand and dust, between them and the nearest grocer's shop. They ordered a case of mixed canned provisions from Perth to reach them about Christmas. 
they didn't believe in plum pudding. There are a good many British institutions that bushmen don't believe in, but the cook was a new chum, and he said he'd go home to his mother if he didn't have plum pudding for Christmas, so they ordered a can for him. Meanwhile, they hung out on kangaroo and damper, and the knowledge that it couldn't last forever. It was in a terrible drought, and the kangaroos used to come in to soak for water, and they were too weak to run. Later on, when wells were dug, the kangaroos used to commit suicide in them. There was generally a kangaroo in the well in the morning. The storekeeper packed the case of tin dog, etc., but by some blunder he or his man put the label on the wrong box, and it went per rail, per coach, per camel, and the last stage per boot, and reached my friend's camp on Christmas Eve, to their great joy. My friend broke the case open by the light of the campfire. Here, Jack, he said, tossing out a can. Here's your plum pudding. He held the next can in his hand a moment longer, and read the label twice. Why, he's sent two, he said and I'm sure I only ordered one. Never mind, Jack'll have a tuck out. He held the next can close to the fire and blinked at it hard. I'm damned if he hasn't sent three tins of plum pudding. Never mind, we'll manage to scoff some of it between us. You're in luck's way this trip, Jack, and no mistake. He looked harder still at the fourth can. Then he read the labels on the other tins again to see if he'd made a mistake. He didn't tell me what he said then, but a milder mate suggested that the storekeeper had sent half a dozen tins by mistake. But when they reached the seventh can, the language was not fit to be written down on a piece of paper and handed up to the magistrate. The storekeeper had sent them an unbroken case of canned plum pudding, and probably by this time he was wondering what had become of that blanky case of duff. The kangaroos disappeared about this time, and my friend tells me that he and his mates had to live for a mortal fortnight on canned plum pudding. They tried it cold, and they tried it boiled, they tried it baked, and had it fried, they had it toasted, and had it for breakfast, dinner, and tea. They had nothing else to think, or talk, or argue and quarrel about, and they dreamed about it every night, my friend says. It wasn't a joke, it gave them the nightmares and day horrors. They tried it with salt, they picked as many of the raisins out as they could, and boiled it with salt kangaroo. They tried to make Yorkshire pudding out of it, but it was too rich. My friend was experimenting and trying to discover a simple process for separating the ingredients of plum pudding when a fresh supply of provisions came along. He says he was never so sick of anything in his life, and he has had occasion to be sick of a good many things. The new chum Jackaroo is still alive, but he won't ever eat plum pudding any more, he says. It cured him of homesickness. He wouldn't eat it, even if his bride made it. 
Christmas on the goldfields in the last of the roaring days, in the palmy days of Galgong and those fields. Let's see, it must be nearly thirty years ago. Oh, how the time goes by! Santa Claus, young, fresh-faced and eager. Santa Claus, blonde and flaxen. Santa Claus, dark. Santa Claus with a brogue and Santa Claus speaking broken English, Santa Claus as a Chinaman, Sun Tong Lee, and Co. storekeepers, with strange, delicious sweets that melted in our mouths, and rum toys and Chinese dolls for the children. Lucky diggers who were with difficulty restrained from putting pound notes and nuggets and expensive lockets and things into the little one's stockings. Santa Claus in flannel shirt and clay-covered moleskins, diggers who bought lollies by the pound and sent the little ones home with as much as they could carry, diggers who gave a guinea or more for a toy for a child that reminded them of some other child at home, diggers who took as many children as they could gather on short notice into a store slapped a five-pound note down on the counter, and told the little ones to call for whatever they wanted. Who set a family of poor children side by side on the counter, and called for a box of mixed children's boots, the best, and fitted them on with great care and anxiety, and frequent inquiries as to whether they pinched? Who stood little girls and boys on the counter, and called for the most expensive frocks, the latest and best in sailor suits, and the brightest ribbons, and things came long distances by bullet grey, and were expensive in those days. Impressionable diggers, and most of them were, who threw nuggets to singers, and who sometimes slipped a parcel into the hands of a little boy or girl with instructions to give it to an elder sister, or young mother, perhaps, whom the digger had never spoken to, only worshipped from afar off. And the older sister or young mother, opening the parcel, would find a piece of jewellery or a costly article of dress, and wonder who sent it. Ah, the wild generosity of luck-intoxicated diggers of those days, and the reckless generosity of the drinkers. We thought it was going to last forever. If I don't spend it on the bands, I'll spend it on the drink, Sandy Boones used to say. I had none me own, and the lass who was to give me bands, she couldn't wait. Sandy had kept steady and travelled from one end of the world to the other, and roughed it and toiled for five years and the very day he bottomed his golden hole on the brown snake lead at Happy Valley, he got a letter from his girl in Scotland to say she had grown tired of waiting and was married. Then he drunk, and drink and luck went together. Galgong, on New Year's Eve, rose and rose of lighted tents and campfires, with a clear glow over it all bonfires on the hills, and diggers romping round them like big boys, tin kettling, gold dishes and spoons, and fiddles, and hammers on pointing anvils, 
and sticks and empty kerosene tins, concertinas and cornets, shotguns, pistols and crackers, all sorts of instruments, and old lang syne in one mighty chorus. And now a wretched little pastoral town, a collection of glaring corrugated iron hip roofs, and maybe a rotting propped up bark or weatherboard humpy or two, relics of the roaring days, a dried up storekeeper and some withered hags, a waste of caved in holes with rain washed mullock heaps and quartz and gravel glaring in the sun, thistles and burrs where old bars were, drought dryness, desolation and goats. Lonely graves in the bush and grey old diggers here and there, anywhere in the world, doing anything for a living, lonely yet because of the girls who couldn't wait, but prospecting and fossicking here and there and dreaming still. They thought it was going to last forever. Christmas at Urundere Creek, amongst the old selection farms in the western spurs of the Blue Mountains. They used to call it the Pipe Clay thirty years ago, but the old black names have been restored. They make plum puddings yet, weeks beforehand, and boil them for hours and hang them in cloths to the rafters to petrify. Then they take them down and boil them again. On Christmas Eve the boys cut boughs or young pines on the hills and drag them home and lash them to the veranda posts. Ted has turned up with his wife and children from his selection out back. The wheat is in and shearing is over on the big stations. Tom, steady going, old Tom, clearing or fencing or dam sinking up country, hides his tools in the scrub and gets his horse and rides home. Aunt Emma, to everyone's joy, has arrived from Sydney with presents, astonishing bargains in frocks, etc., and marvellous descriptions of town life. Joe, poor Mary's husband, who has been droving in Queensland since the Christmas before last, while poor Mary, who is afraid to live alone, shared a skillion and the family quarrels at home. Joe rides day and night and reaches home at sunrise on Christmas morning, tired and dusty, gaunt and haggard, but with his last check intact. He kisses his wife and child, and throws himself on the bed to sleep till dinner time, while Mary moves round softly, hushes the baby, dresses it and herself, lays out Joe's clean things, and bends over him now and then and kisses him, perhaps, as he sleeps. In the morning the boys and some of the men go down to the creek for a swim in the big shady pool, under the sha-oaks, and take their Sunday clothes with them, and dress there. Some of them ride into town to church, and some of the women and children drive in in spring carts. The children go to Sunday school, leaving mother and the eldest daughter, usually a hard-worked, disappointed, short-tempered girl, at home to look after the cooking. There is some anxiety, mostly on mother's part, about Jim, who is wild, 
and is supposed to be somewhere out back. There was a piece of blue paper out for Jim on account of sweating, illegally using a horse. But his mother or father has got a hint, given in a kindly way by the police sergeant, that Jim is free to come home and stay at home if he behaves himself. There is usually a horse missing when Jim goes out back. Jim turns up all right, save that he has no money, and is welcomed with tearful affection by his favourite sister Mary, shakes hands silently with his father, and has a long whispered conversation with his mother, which leaves him very subdued. His brothers forbear to sneer at him, partly because it is Christmas, partly on his mother's account, and thirdly, because Jim can use his hands. Aunt Emma, who is fond of him, cheers him up wonderfully. The family sit down to dinner, an old mate of your father's. A bearded old digger has arrived and takes the place of honour. I knowed your father, Sonny, on the diggings long afore any of you was ever thought on. The family have only been a few hours together, yet there is an undercurrent of growling, that, to the stranger, mysterious yet evident undercurrent of nastiness and resentment, which goes on in all families, and drags many a promising young life down. But Aunt Emma and the old mate makes things brighter, and so the dinner of hot roast and red-hot plum pudding passes off fairly well. The men sleep the afternoon away, and wake up bathed in perspiration and helpless. Some of the women have headaches. After tea they gather on the veranda in the cool of the evening, and that's the time when the best sides of their natures and the best parts of the past have a chance of coming uppermost and perhaps they begin to feel a bit sorry that they are going to part again. The local races of sports on Boxing Day. There is nothing to keep the boys home over New Year. Ted and his wife go back to their lonely life on their selection. Tom returns to his fencing or tank sinking contract. Jim, who has borrowed a couple of quid from Tom, goes out back with strong resolutions for the new year, and shears stragglers, breaks in horses, cooks and clerks for survey parties, and gambles and drinks, and gets into trouble again. Maybe Joe knocks about the farm a bit before going into the great northwest with another mob of cattle. The last time I saw the old year out at Yundaree, the bushfires were burning all over the ranges, and looks like great cities lighted up. No need for bonfires then. Christmas in Burke, the metropolis of the great pastoral scrubs and plains, five hundred miles west, with the thermometer one hundred and something scary in the shade. The rough, careless shearers coming from stations many dusty miles out, in scrubs to have their Christmas sprees, to drink and shout and fight, and have the horrors, some of them, and to be run in and locked up with difficulty, within sound of a church-going bell. 
The Burke Christmas is a very beery and exciting one. The hotels shut up in front on Christmas Day to satisfy the law, or out of consideration for the feelings of the sergeant in charge of the police station, and open behind to satisfy the public who are supposed to have made the law. Sensible cold dinners are the fashion in Burke, I think with the hose going and free and easy costumes. The free males take their blankets and sleep in the park. The women sleep with doors and windows open, and the married men on mattresses on the verandas across the open doors, in case of accidents. Christmas in Sydney, though Christmas holidays are not so popular as Easter or even Anniversary Day, in the Queen City of the South. Buses, electric cable, and the old steam trams, crowded with holiday-makers with baskets. Harbour boats loaded down to the water's edge, with harbour picnic parties. A trip round the harbour, and to the head of Middle Harbour, one shilling return. Strings of tourist trains running over the Blue Mountains and the Great Zigzag and up the coast to Gosford and Brisbane Water, and down the coast to beautiful Illawarra, until after New Year. Hundreds of young fellows going out with tents to fish in lonely bays or shoot in the mountains, and rough it properly like bushmen, not with deck chairs, crockery, a piano, and servants for you can camp in the grand and rugged solitude of the bush, within a stone's throw of the city, so to speak. Jolly camps and holiday parties all round the beautiful bays of the harbour, and up and down the coast, and all close to home. Camps in the moonlight on sandy beaches under great dark bluffs and headlands, where yellow, shelving, sandstone cliffs run, broken only by sandy beach bays, and where the silver-white breakers leap and roar. And Manly Beach, on a holiday, thousands of people in fresh summer dress, hundreds of bare-legged, happy children, running where the blue sea over the white sand rolls, racing in and out with the rollers, playing with the glorious Pacific. Manly, our village, manly beach, where we used to take our girls, with the most beautiful harbour in the world on one side, and the width of the grandest ocean on the other, ferny gullies and fairy dells to north and south, every shady nook its merry party or happy couple. Manly beach, I remember, five years ago. Oh, how the time goes by! and the two names that were written together in the sand when the tide was coming in, and the boat home in the moonlight, past the heads, where we felt the roll of the ocean, and the moonlit harbour, and the harbour lights of Sydney, the grandest of them all. The End of the Ghosts of Many Christmases From the Collection of Children of the Bush by Henry Lawson